Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on March 24th, 2022. My guest on the show today is blogger and historian Jenny Kirby. Having received a master's degree in history from Southern New Hampshire University, Jenny's passion for history led her to produce a blog and podcast dedicated to broadening public awareness about the importance of understanding this topic from a variety of points of view. She also offers tutorial services to younger students, emphasizing an understanding of fundamental historiographies and research processes in order to produce quality historical perspectives based on well-vetted source material. In the modern internet age, we are constantly bombarded with news and information from so many content providers that it's difficult to parse between misinformation, disinformation, flat-out lies, and narratives that may have some basis in reality. Now it is more important than ever to have the skills and discipline to wade through this sea of information and come out with an accurate understanding of the events of the day. As journalism is simply the current version of history, Jenny's solid understanding of the fundamentals of historical research can help you to do just that. This conversation will cover a variety of research methodologies and historical paradigms that can help you process news and information quickly and accurately. We will discuss the importance of following source material for verification, as well as how to differentiate between primary and secondary sources with the ability to assess its veracity. When these techniques are applied, you might be surprised to find your most trusted news venue rarely stands up to the challenges of this type of academic rigor. In the era of fake news, these skills are more important than ever. Find out more about the work of Jenny Kirby and check out her podcast, Stacks, by going to www.jennykirbyhistory.com. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this content on your favorite social media platform. For hours of free content, to sign up for the newsletter and subscribe for feature-length episodes of The Shift, go to www.theshiftnow.com. You can also sign up for the Populous Papers on Substack for articles and podcasts delivered straight to your inbox. To become part of the conversation, find Doug McKinty on Facebook, at McKinty on Twitter, or search for The Shift with Doug McKinty on YouTube, Rockfin, and Odyssey. I want to thank historian Jenny Kirby for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make The Shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this, the 114th episode of The Shift. I am your host. My name is Doug McKinty, and I am joined today by historian Jenny Kirby. Uh, I've been wanting to have a conversation about history in general for a long time, kind of give my audience uh, a feel for how history is done, how good history is done, how people can think about history, because I think that it... Um, 
it really influences the way people think about the present. I don't think a lot of people understand how much their sense of history um, defines their interpretation of the events that are happening in the in the modern day. And uh, so I wanted to have Jenny on to just have a general conversation about history, how to study it, how to think about it, how to do it well, uh, so that people can really actually dive in and do their own research, but do it in a, in a good way, in a way that they can kind of figure out their own interpretations of history, not just believe what they're spoon fed uh, in the in the common or dominant narrative, but the fact that there are just actually so many choices and so many ways to view history. So I'm happy to have her on. Jenny, do you want to uh, just let my audience know who you are here in the first couple of minutes and tell us about yourself? Sure. My name is Jenny Kirby. I'm originally from Westminster, Louisiana. I moved up to the Ozarks eight years ago to study the Civil War and how it impacted the Northwest Arkansas regions. Um, I received my BA in Southern New Hampshire University in history, and I just graduated last year with my master's at Southern New Hampshire University uh, in history as well. Um, my main focus in graduate school was military history and American, um, with American emphasis. That being said, my blog is on Karl Marx and my podcast is uh, about colonial America. And that's at uh, jennykirbyhistory.com. Yeah, I would recommend people go uh, and check it out and see the work that Jenny's been doing. You also uh, on the blog talk about uh, helping students to develop um, study plans and guides. Um, and you talk about the the historiography of history. Can you uh, tell my audience what that means and what that's all about? Yes. Historiography is what history is. It is the blueprint of how a historian interprets history. So what does that mean? Well, you have to look at the historical methods, number one. So what the question is, what are historical methods? And it's the historian's scientific method of how to approach history. So we break that down and it's broken down by our research and our writing and how to write, how to craft our research into a book, an an article, what have you. And the first thing you want to look at when you're really wanting to dive deep in the research there is you want to look at your primary and secondary sources. That is your um, your sample. And uh, if you're going to look at it in a scientific way and what you do, you take your research and you compare it with your primary and secondary sources. So you look at the thesis of each individual source. And you say, okay, well, such and such wrote and argued this. And you compare and contrast those those arguments, strictly the arguments. And you want to look at their individual research, where they got their argument, where they got their ideas from. And then you have to compare and contrast each source with those. That is the historical methods. From there, you want to dive into their conclusions how they came up with, you know, did they really argue and defend their thesis correctly and ethically? Then you want to look at where the uh, the individual, whether it's a historian or scholar, where did they graduate from? What were their um, their credentials? What have they done in the field? 
And that will tell you as soon as you start gathering your sources, if you have scholarly sources or not. That is what you look for is scholarly sources. Going on the web, you're going to find many, 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 many articles on many, many topics. But you have to make sure those are scholarly. You cannot use them if they're not scholarly. You're not going to be able to back up your own arguments if you don't use scholarly sources. What what does that mean? Can you define that for scholarly sources written by individuals that work in the field? Uh-huh. You want historians. You want um, anybody that works in the humanities field. You can have sociologists, scientists, arth- uh, anthropologists, archaeologists. Any of those individuals are great, and you want to make sure to. And I've I, I will swear by this. Make sure that if you use a secondary source that it's published by university. They are not going to publish anything um, that is not scholarly. So anything that is wrong in that book, they're not going to publish it. They're not going to want their university attached to something that has been misconstrued. Sure. They're not going to do it. So those are the best sources to go to because they have went through a fine tooth comb and made sure that that information and those those sources that that individual used are ethical and have been interpreted interpret interpreted as best as the historian um, interpreted. I'm saying it's you can take it. <sighs> When you read into these sources, it's kind of like right into the Bible or the Quran. You can have many, many different interpretations. So you want to make sure you look at each interpretation to make sure you're getting the right idea from that source itself. Mm-hmm. You don't want to just throw your own ideas out there. You have to look at what other people have done, how they interpret it too. It's just not a it's not a simple process at all. It, it, it takes and it takes months to you know if you have a hundred sources to write one book, those sources have been analyzed with a time fine tooth comb. Right, you have to do it that way. There's no way around it. Will you just explain, just to, just to set the foundation, I imagine that most of my listeners understand the difference, but um, I've actually been surprised when I go out into the world or I go onto social media uh, that people aren't, especially in the social media com- conversations that happen, people really have a hard time uh, having that discipline to really um, cite the sources or, or and understand the difference between primary sources and secondary sources. So will you just explain that really briefly so, so yes. people kind of can get that down? Yeah, I will. Um, secondary sources are anything. Okay, let me just back up way. Mm-hmm. Let's go further back. Yeah. Your primary sources are sources that are so close to the history to that particular event. So take the Holocaust, for example. Everybody's familiar with the Holocaust by now. So let's take the Holocaust, for example. What is a primary source within the Holocaust? The film that the Gestapo, you know, filmed themselves. Right. The photos that we have. The diaries that people wrote during those war years. And the eyewitness accounts. The ones that actually experienced the event themselves. Those are your primary sources. Your secondary sources is me as a historian going out and collecting those interviews, collecting those films, collecting that, uh, 
you know, the articles written by newspapers, that is your secondary sources because you're going to interpret those. So me as a historian, I am the secondary source because I am the outsider viewing into it. So mm-hmm. when you go and collect your sources to give a better visual, it's the books, it's the um, journal articles, it's uh, magazine articles, it's the articles that you find on the website. Those are secondary sources. But then in those secondary sources, you have credible sources, scholarly sources, and sources that are not they're not really um, ethical. So right, what right. does that mean? Wikipedia, for example, is not a source that you want to cite at all. There's, and this is why, and this is why universities are so, so against it. You have too many people in there that can edit that article. So if you use that article in your source and you, as an individual, you read this, this book and you go to that article, it has been edited. It has been changed. It's not how the historian originally interpreted. Secondly, with Wikipedia, you have too many people in there that are not part of the field that are now not saying that they don't know their stuff, but they're not in the field. They're not working in the field and they might not have the experience or the knowledge to write that particular article. They may not, they may know all the information there and they have studied that particular topic, but, and this is how you have to look at it too. If you have, if you're in med school and you went through your BA and now you're in med school and you were sitting there saying, okay, now I can be a surgeon because I went through my BA and finished my BA and now I'm in med school. So I'm qualified to talk about surgeries and do surgeries. Would you go to that individual? Right. Knowing that he didn't have the, the experience to cut on you? Of course not. So when you look at these sources, you have to look at that individual who wrote it to understand that, okay, they may have the note, they may have the knowledge there, but do they have that experience? And with it so being so questionable, who wrote these articles and who are they? It really, um, it's going to weaken your thesis and it's going to weaken your own research. Right. So it's best to use um, articles written by those that work in the field. And park rangers, for instance, are good sources to go to. They know those battlefields, frontwards and backwards. So that would be a good a good source to use is the National Park Services sources. You can use those. Um, anything that's written by a university, been published by a university, those are amazing sources. But you really got to look at anything that you pull from that web. You've got to make sure what article you're you're pulling from i do not use any online article unless there's the author's name on it and that author has the credentials to back that back that article up so say it's a it's a um my favorite articles to go to is the ones on the university's websites and you look at that name and they're going to have that PhD behind there. And it's going to be like department of sociology, department of history. Mm. Those are the sources that you want to look at. And those are the ones that you want to use 
when you're writing anything about history or any field for that, for that matter, you want those, you want that, uh, that credential there. Sure. Any article that has a nominus or doesn't have an author name, name there, don't use it. It's, you don't know, you don't know who wrote it. You don't know anything about it. You don't know their facts, where they got their facts from, especially articles that don't have a list of resources there. You're not going to be able to trace their their uh, opinions. You're not going right. to be able to trace their argument. And so just like a private investigator, that is a suspicious um, eyewitness. It's a suspicious account. It may not jive with what and it just you have a lot of information there, but you can easily and I've 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 go through this all the time with the web. I go and look at what these people have wrote and go back and it had been rewritten. It had been cop it would have been plagiarized. It had been um misconstrued. And it's like, well, that's not what the original poem says. That's not what the original poem, how the original poem was written. And this has happened several several times for me using uh, web articles. You've really got to make sure that you can trace that that work. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's why I wanted to bring it up. I mean, I'm hoping to, um, I, you know, it's it's almost funny because I think for for a lot of people, this is kind of basic or fundamental information for anybody that's that's especially when you're doing your own research on the internet you're going to be flooded with so much information but the the importance of reading some somebody's work especially online and then double checking their primary sources or or their source material to make sure that it's valid is absolutely the most important thing that you can do um You know, I see so many. You don't want you don't want. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you don't want someone that you're using to have a source there that is not kosher. You know, you don't want to use a source because that falls back on you as the researcher. Well, you should have known that this was a lie. You should have known that this would have been misinterpreted wrong. And that messes up your career, not only as a voice on the Internet, but it also messes up your career as being a, a, uh, a credible writer, a scholar. You know, it can really mess up your career. It's, sure. so it's really important to look at those sources and not just pull up the first article that you Google. You've got to look at those articles and compare and contrast the best articles, the best material that you want is from museums.gov.edu. Um there's databases that you can use that are free. Um, museums now have online, uh, especially Library of Congress, the National Archives. Those are the sources that you want. Mm-hmm. Some random article, like you would not want to um, use my blog as a source for your book or journal because. It, it logs are, I mean, you get good information, not, don't get me wrong, but you don't want to cite it, cite any of those quotes. You want to go to that blog and say, okay, here's what this writer, these are the sources the writers use. You want to go to those sources that that writer used. Um, you don't want to quote from a blog that, because you can go in and edit that. You can go in and change that. 
And gluten from blogs is just a big no-no. Sure. Don't do it. You want something that has already been published that cannot be re-edited. Um, again, it goes back to that writing process. If it's been re-edited, it's going to be have it's going to have another a new publication with a revision, and it's going to state that this is a second edition with the with an a uh, uh, with an introduction, a detailed introduction. It's going to tell you it, that kind of thing that's in the book. Um, and it's really important that you use the correct sources. And a lot of people are hindered by the internet. That's the first thing they want to go to is that Google. You can go to the, your local library and look in through stacks and stacks of documents that's not been published on the internet. Right. What the libraries do is that if there is one particular article that's constantly being requested, they take that and they scan it and they put it in their database. So you're not hitting all the articles that the library holds. You're just hitting the popular articles that has been requested multiple times over and over again. And it's just, okay, instead of having to go and pull this one article and send it to such and such, let's just go ahead and scan it. And then the article is just already there or that photo or the film that they keep, they keep uh, mentioning. We'll go ahead that and put that in our database. And that's, that's why you don't have a very strong collection with local libraries for, as far as the online databases go. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't ever use Google as your last, res- your first resort or your last resort. There's other search engines there right. that can pull articles too. And DuckDuckGo has become one of my newest favorite uh, search engines because it pulls. I don't know how their uh, their algorithm works, but it pulls old websites from the nineties, from the early nineties. And there was one website that it pulled from me and it was a historian that had went in to their local library and scanned all the Civil War journals. Every single one of them that was found in his library, he scanned them and put them on his on his website. And you can go and read those those original diaries for right. right from this website i couldn't find that on google i had to go to DuckDuckGo to find it so the algorithms are different on each search engine so just don't use google use use them all if especially if you're doing your own research on a particular historical topic right such as the holocaust or the civil war and you wanted to you don't want to go down the rabbit hole of a conspiracy of a, the conspiracies let me explain that a certain type of when you do research your your road the path that you do your research is going to lead you to other articles that are similar so if i pick up a book and look at what that particular author wrote and i look at their sources that they used all their sources is going to tie it back to their thesis that's what their sources are supposed to do it's going to tie it right straight back to their thesis so you want to get a different book that has a different thesis with a different argument. You want to you want to flip the coin on yourself. So if I'm writing about um, the Civil War in Northwest Arkansas, and I, I did my uh, graduate thesis on this, I want to flip the coin and say, okay, I'm looking at this particular town, say Boone County, the towns in Boone County, but how did the Civil War impact? their their town in Fayetteville did they have 
you know, did they have the same issues when the war hit those areas? Did they all, did they go into starvation? Were their lines cut? How did the women, how did the women deal with it? Because in Fayetteville, the war hit them harder. The battles hit them harder. But in Boone County, they didn't see a lot of battles, but they were going through the same effects of the war. The way you do that is your research questions. So the number one thing that you need to do is collect your research questions before you even look at your sources. Your research, your research questions is going to be your roadmap to your sources. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now that we know, we understand the difference between primary and secondary sources. Now we have to come up with our argument, our research questions, your topic. You know, it's this is all basic writing stuff. Um, it, yeah. You should learn, know how that goes, but your research questions are your roadmap and you really got to look when you look into your research questions and formulate these questions, flip the coin, um, look at the culture, the society that we call these historical lenses. Look at, OK, if we're looking at white women here because the majority of them were white women. What about the what about the Cherokee? What about the the Chickasaw? What about the uh, the Black Americans? Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, you know the men, the men that stayed because they were too old to fight? You want to compare and contrast that because each story is going to be different. Number one, each person that was imp- impacted by the Civil War is going to have their own voice. They're going to have their own different experience. You know this by the Holocaust. Holocaust is the great. If you're wanting to really learn research, the Holocaust is the best topic to do it because we have so much documentation. The Nazis, the Holocaust survivors, they have left a lot of documentation. We have films, we have photographs. I mean, the Nazis were very well they documented their their whole process i mean it's the most documented part part of of the whole entire historiography the most documented that we've have is the holocaust that's why it's so popular and it's really easy to find those sources because it's so well documented by the nazis themselves i might add sure um so you want to look into your research questions and look at your historical lenses and those lenses and it's just like going to get your eye your um, eye examined we look at layers and layers and layers of our of the sources that we that we pull um we look at the culture society we look at gender I'm sorry gender um religion race uh we look at the view of um uh, economics you know government military what have you and you sit there and you're like okay well here's what the military were experiencing here's what the civilians were experiencing oh let me do that research on the military and the civilians and how they clashed Mm -hmm. and they did and in pretty much every war civilians and military are going to clash at one point because they're going to be so um close to the event itself especially in war and you're going to have a clash. You're going to have those that support the soldiers and some that just absolutely hate them because it was them that took their their farms away. It was them that burned their farms. It was them that, you know, stole their cattle. And you have it all through from 
World War One, well, World War Two, all the way back to King David. Um, war really impacts civilian life, and that's one thing that I, I enjoy looking at is how war impacts civilians. And that was one of the reasons why I did my thesis on the Civil War because I wanted to really look at wanted to look at their diaries and journals. And their writings of how they survived without their husbands. You're talking about society that had to rely on their men. Mm -hmm. And it was really important for me to really look at their experiences within their social classes. So you have the wealthy, the poor, and you have the middle class. Did each individual woman experience the Civil War as... um, differently or did they all experience at the same time at the same rate these are the research questions that i used with my thesis um and it's it's great it's a great start when you do research to look at say if you're looking at i mentioned king david so you're looking at king david where are your resources in ancient period you're not going to have the documents so you're going to have to look at archaeological evidence you're going to have to look into um the books written by the archaeologists, historians themselves, and how they interpreted the archaeological evidence. I'm not one of those historians that believe that we should not use the um, the sciences. I am I'm a firm believer that without archaeologists, historians wouldn't have a job mm-hmm. because we're whereas the archaeologist digs in the dirt, we dig in the attics. And right. <laughs> you got to, it's true. I mean, yeah. it's very true. We're, we're dig, we dig the documents, they dig in the artifacts to interpret whatever we find to the best of our abilities. And when you tie the two together, you get this really amazing picture of how culture and society formed during the ancient period. Yeah. It's very difficult to do. Um, and I applaud anybody that can do it. Because it takes a lot of research. It takes digging into the artifacts. It's you don't have the the written word. And if you do, you're only going to get a smidgen or a part of it. Look at the uh, giggle mesh tablet. You know, there's still parts of it missing. Um, we don't have the whole the whole set of that story, but we have enough to where we understand, hey, the Babylonians were were really really a civilized culture for them to have that kind of art going on you know to have that those fictional stories and you start looking at the babylon temples and you have to interpret every little thing that you you see that gives us the idea of how the culture how the babylonian culture emerged whereas when you look at something in the civil war you don't have to really rely on all the artifacts as a sure as an interpretation mode you can have uh you can rely strictly on the diaries themselves i wouldn't recommend that it your your story is not going to really have a great impact what i did is looked at to look at the environment how they used um, the waterways, you know, in Mesopotamia, for example, we all know that it's situated between two rivers. Why is that? Because in the ancient world, in in the uh, Iran Iraq area today, 
water is crucial. It's a crucial source and you're going to have many battles fighting over water. So look at the environment too, not just, you don't want to just look at, oh, well, gender and military. You want to look at every, history is like a cube. You want to look at every side and you want to interpret it every side Mm -hmm. and you get a full story because that's what historians do. That is what historiography is. It's the story of humankind. Mm -hmm from the beginning to now. And if you don't get the story right, you're going to have a lot of issues. um, And people are going to question it. Well, you got this date wrong. Why did you use this date? Why did you do it this way? And you're not, you're not going to be able to keep up with the issues that you created and you're not going to be able to be part of that piece of that puzzle. So take, excuse me, take your time when you're doing this research and make sure you piece it together to the best of your ability because there's going to be that one source that pops up and it's like oh that's the source I could have used five years ago and it's going to change your thesis it's going to change your whole perspective right of history and it's like oh well we somehow we've got to add that now to the timeline that we've created that's historiography that's what you want to be part of you don't want to be part of Oh gosh, revolution, revolutionists. <laughs> um, the revisionist historians, your history revolves and it transforms itself with each new document that you run across. You don't want to be a revisionist that sits there and says, okay, this is the one source that I'm going to use, that I'm going to say that is correct because I have a connect emotional connection to it. And because such and such wrote it and I like it, I'm going to use that and we're going to rewrite history because everybody lied and history is a big, you know, everybody lied about history. There's no such thing as I don't like that phrase at all. What it is, it has been interpreted in a different way. And you've got to look at the interpretation. Why did we say that Columbus discovered America? Well, because in his time, he did. You know, that was a new world. Well, people were, I love it when they say that. Well, people are already there. The Native Americans were all there. It wasn't a discovered land. For his culture, for his society. Right, from his point of view. Exactly. And to understand that he discovered America, and he really did. He thought, well, actually, he thought he discovered India. He had no (laughs) idea that it was the new world. Well. Jenny, I want to I want to interrupt you because I, I want to take this one step at a time. And I did want to cover I wanted to cover the importance of the primary source material because that's okay. where everybody's got to go. It's a discipline that that I think I mean, one of the reasons why I want to have this conversation is because like you brought up archaeology, but it's also journalism basically functions the same way. Right. Like we have our primary and secondary sources. We can trust the journalist or we can trust the historian, but you better check their sources to make sure that their argument actually follows from from solid source material. Um, and that's where everybody's got to start. It's just that, and then, of course, the farther in the past you go, you're still using the same process, but you have less and less information, and it's more and more challenging to really try to construct uh, the reality yes. of a time that happened. I mean, it's hard enough to do it for what happened 10 minutes ago, you know, much less what happened uh, 10,000 years ago. Um, but still, it's this, this same process of, of finding these primary sources, of double-checking, 
uh, when because so many people do do their research on the internet and there is so much misinformation out there um, that people really need to learn exactly how this process works and then have that discipline to to make sure and double check that those prime that primary source material and whatever article that you're reading i mean after a while you get to trust a, a writer a journalist a historian mm-hmm. that you know does good work fair enough but initially if you're getting to know somebody's work always always uh, check their sources and make sure that they're not kind of pulling a fast one or promoting a perspective that they really want to be true, even though it's probably not true because they don't have the sources that can back up their argument. Exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about then. Uh, I mean, you've talked about, you know, coming up with your research questions and then creating the narrative out of this. And then we can get into what revisionist history is, I think, okay. because once we have this foundation, people can kind of compare it. But but there are many different narratives that come out. I mean, we have a certain amount of information, even if we have uh, a lot of primary source material that's pretty valid, people are going to look at it, different people, and they're going to construct a different narrative around what they think this material you know, is expressing from the past, what was going on. So um, can you talk about that? Because I think it's also important that you, when you're doing this kind of research, that you read a few different narratives of different people from different points of view before you can kind of try to construct your own feeling about what really happened. And there's a lot. I mean, people think, oh, well, colonial America wasn't well documented. It was very well documented. People wrote about their discoveries. They 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 created sketches. This is why why we have so many different maps of the colonial period. This is the reason why we have the, they mentioned sea monsters and they talk about the monsters of the sea and they were afraid to go out in the sea. Ships would get lost. Well, why? They didn't have the navigational systems that we have today. They sh- they had some. That's why Columbus was allowed to discover America because the Spanish and the Portuguese. Um, created navigational tools to really um, go out there and create their own trade routes. Why did that happen? Because the Silk Roads. The Silk Roads was the um, was the challenge. Was the was the cause of the vision of creating new trade routes. They mm-hmm. wanted to get closer to the trade routes. They wanted to make it less. Che- they wanted to make it cheaper, less expensive, and less dangerous it was very dangerous uh trading throughout the uh the silk roads because everybody had their hand in it the silk roads was the reason why america became discovered um so what sources would you look at that in that particular case the journals um uh glutenberg project glutenberg.org has old books that have been scanned into their systems and you can find journals of the early early days of discovery the age of discovery is what we call it and you have columbus all his works uh cortez his stories um they all wrote they all wrote about their experiences now with that here's the issue we do not have the interpret. We don't have the voice of the Native Americans themselves. Why is that? Well, they didn't have a written language. Their their language, and this is the issue. Even when you go and write in in the West, is oral. 
So they pass their stories, their history from one person to the next. Well, what's the issue with that? Sounds great. Sounds all pretty. Stories change. And I think that's my notification is going off. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Stories change when you when you um, tell a story and look at the fairy tales that you were told when you were a kid. You know, you would there would be a point you didn't tell it that way the last time you told it you told me about blah 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 you went into and you you described this beautiful dress that this you know fairy godmother was wearing and you didn't do it that last time well the same thing with oral history you're not gonna you're not gonna tell the same story over and over and over you're gonna forget parts you're gonna add parts there and when you die that story that you're told is going to automatically be revised of how that seven-year-old, that eight-year-old interpreted at the time. And so I remember when grandma sat there and told us this story. So I'm going to tell you the way that she told it, but are you really human memory is another major issue that you have to fight against. It's, it's not, it's, We would like to think that our intelligence is higher than every every species on the planet. But the issue with memory is that it's selective. You have selective memory. And that really is the hardest uh, issue as a historian to overcome because how, how was it interpreted? If we had this oral story that was finally written down in language, say the Navajo creational story that we have, is it really the original story that was told? And what, how did it even became, how did it even become a reality that we have the creation story of the Navajo? Um, we don't know. We have no idea. Someone decided to write it down finally. And now we have it written down, but was it the original story that was told? I guarantee you it was not. It's like the Bible. Look how many times that you ch- you translate the Bible or the Quran or the Torah. Sure. Through translation, you lose things. Words from one language aren't going to transfer into another. So you have to pick that 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 best word that fits that context to help readers understand what the writer was actually saying. That is you value there when you do that. People don't understand that, but you use a lot of a lot of value there. It's not the original text. It's been transformed to help you understand what the author was saying. It's not the original. And so when you look at history, you have to also look at that. There's a lot of issues there with oral history. And a lot of the stories hadn't been told. When you go out and you commit genocide, those stories die with those people. And their culture dies because it's been exploited. All the gold was stolen. Look at Herman Cortez. To me, Herman Cortez was a lot worse than Columbus because that's what he did. Columbus didn't do that. Herman Cortez did. And he exploited all the gold, sent it back to Europe with him and more and more people would come and exploit the people there's tribes that these uh first explorers wrote about and one particular tribe that i found really interesting was a group of women their left breast had been cut they cut their left breast that way they could um use uh, effectively the breasts would get in the way so they cut their left breast the whole tribe 
He comes back a few years later, that tribe's gone. What happened to those women? We have no idea. It was written down the time that he saw them and now they're gone. Their story has gone with them. We have no idea who those women were, what kind of culture, why they formed their own tribe, you know, where, you know, was it a group of lesbians? You know, I mean, homosexuality was part of our human past. It's always has been. Were those a group of lesbians that decided, hey, let's form our own community? You know, we have no idea. It's just speculation of right. why would a woman, but they were survivalists because they cut off their left breast in order to use the bow and arrow effectively. That's that's pretty big for them to be willing to do that, to form their own tribe. And it was a tribe of women. That's what he called it, the tribe of women. And he he drew a sketch of these women with their left breath, with their left breast uh, removed. But we don't know what happened to him after that. Was it was he really telling the truth? This is another this is the another research questions that you have to go into. Was he telling the truth? Was he just trying to make a a a story to to become popular like Smith and Columbus? I mean, because he was competing with these people, too. And he wanted the pop would did he want the popularity also about these there was a lot when you look into these accounts, there was a lot of competition between these men of what they found, what they discovered. This is another reason why Columbus took those Indians from their land, homeland and sent them back home with him. So he would have definite proof of what he saw. He wanted people to know that these are the how people live. It was very different from your Europe. Your, uh, European culture. They've never seen, uh, you know, uh, those kind of the, uh, the cloth that they use. They, it was all bizarre for them because they right. weren't wearing long dresses and breeches and they had no sense of style. And you have to look at the shock of the courts when Columbus did that and, and their point of view in it. It was, it was bizarre. And it was almost shocking. You know, you have to understand, too, their world was so closed off. You're, we're just getting out of medieval period. We're in the Renaissance age. And it was still closed off. And it just shocked everybody that there was people that lived differently than they did. They've never seen anything like it before. So you have to really put yourself out of this. And I'll tell my students this, too when I help them with our research and everything that you cannot put um, a modern kitchen in the past. Yeah. You would, you would get strange looks and be called a witch. Why do I say that? Because our mind is so modern. We're so used to the technology that we have. You go on the, the, the computer, you can type any article and find something there. You can look on the TV and find out what's going on in the world. They had no that they had none of that. And so if you put a modern kitchen, your modern thoughts in the past and judge people by your modern thought, you're you're going to get the wrong interpretation there because they didn't judge each other the way we do now. Right. They didn't look at the world that we do now because the world that we know, they didn't even is a very um, people don't know this, but that's a very 19th century invention that was invented by the railroads. 
people didn't have watches and they didn't go by time. The sun, they knew in their mind, the sun would always rise and it would always set. That was their, that was their time. So when you go in and you look at these individuals from the past, you have to interpret the past through their eyes, through their lenses, through their own experiences. And it's not a historian's job to judge. You cannot judge the Nazis and judge the Jews and judge, you know, whoever, because they did it wrong. For the Nazis, they did it right. You know what I'm saying? For Stalin, he did it right by creating the gulags. If you go back and you could question these individuals throughout the past, that's their answer you're probably going to get. Well, I believed it, so I did it. I wanted that, so I did it. You're not going to get the excuses. You're going to, they're going to be like, well, that's what we did. And so we did it. Sure. You know, there was an agenda there and you have to look at that agenda. You can't just judge it because, oh, well, they're so horrible people. But because for them, horrible people, it was the Jews were horrible. It was the Indians that were horrible. The Indians thought that the white men were horrible because they were both doing horrible things to each other. And the Native Americans were like, these these men are horrible people and we don't want anything to do with them. Well, the Europeans had that same concept, too. So you can't judge. We are not jurors and we're not we're not the judge. We're not the courts. You have to look into those sources and interpret it through their eyes without the bias and the prejudice of modern thought. Again, you can't look, you can't put your modern kitchen. Can you imagine putting your modern kitchen in the ancient world? They've never seen anything like it. They never seen a stove. They've never seen. So if you keep that in mind, say, okay, here's my modern thoughts. Here's my modern recipes. You, you take those modern recipes to the medieval period and you're going to burn at the stake because it's foreign. It's alien to them. So mm. you cannot judge and use your bias views on your interpretations. You've got to step out. If you are emotionally connected to your sources, to your thesis, you shouldn't be writing it. You cannot be emotionally attached and if you're emotionally attached, don't write it because your emotions of that that time period is going to come out and it's going to sound until it's not going to sound scholarly. It's going to sound um, uh, liberal, if you will. It's going to sound. Like, oh, my gosh, it's going to sound like you're almost crazy. And if you ever read someone that's ever read anything that's, that where that has the emotion, the voice all, that, all of a sudden just changes in mid-sentence. And it's like, wow, we have anger here. Um, there was a book that I was reading about Eli Wassell, and he wrote in his book, he kind of went on to this, it's his memoir, and he kind of went on to this emotion of where you could just really feel his anger toward God. And it was just, all of a sudden, it was just there. And it's like, oh, wow, you know, he's he has issues from that because he blames God for losing his whole family in the Holocaust. And it just really struck me that all of a sudden you had this anger right there. Right. But he kept it. He could have edited it. He could have kept it, but it's a memoir. That's okay. But when you're writing third person scholarly sources, 
that emotion cannot be there because it's going to throw off the mood. It's going to throw off like I read an article one time on the Internet and I was really going to use it for one of my blogs because it was really great. And then all the end, it started going in this in this rant of this is the reason why, you know, our government is the way it is. And it just went into this blah, blah, blah. And it changed the mood. It didn't flow. And it's like, okay, well, I can't use that now because you you just totally run this whole article. And it was at the very end of this article and I couldn't even use it. And it was really well written. I was going to use it until I got to the very end. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, I can't use that now because you changed your voice. You changed your narrative to where you blamed the modern people for this event that happened and it, it, it just didn't make sense. And it was just like, okay, it, it, it spoke, it screams amateur is what it does. And you don't want to be an amateur writer. You don't want to be judged as an amateur writer. And so if you can't keep your emotions out, walk away, reevaluate your sources, reevaluate that book because especially if it's an interesting topic for you you can do it this way but if you're so emotionally attached to where down the germans that caused the holocaust and you know let's let's go and tear germany back up again you go into these little rants it's not going to be good for your research because that's not how you interpret history you have to look through the eyes of the, the germans too as hard as that is, you have to look at their eyes of the Germans. Why did the Germans do this? Right. You know, why, what was their motivation? And they had a motivation, and it was a pretty strong and legit motivation. If you look into it, you'll understand. And I don't like how um, some, especially the uh, the young, young writers, probably the freshmen and sophomore, how they go and compare and contrast certain things. And how they uh it could be something like oh uh for instance concentration camps and uh um reservations or internment camps Mm -hmm. oh they're all the same they're all concentration camps are they that's my question to you are they all the same and and that at that point, you need to step back and say, OK, is this true? Is this a true statement? Are they all the same? Because in the Holocaust, you have a difference between an extermination camp and a death camp. You have a difference between a concentration camp and a death camp. There is a huge difference there. There's a huge difference between a internment camp and a concentration camp and a death camp. There is a difference between uh, an internment camp and a transit camp. There's a difference in these camps. And if you look closely at the Gulag, camps are not a new thing in in human history. Hitler was not the first person, nor will he ever be the last, unfortunately, that to create a holding pen to to put people in that they don't like. Right. Throughout human history, holding pens have been used was used in the ancient periods it was used in rome it was used in babylon it's nothing new in human history what's new and different was how and why they were being killed in these particular uh arenas 
And you have to interpret that. If you're really going to look at, if you're really going to state something like that, you need to look at your statement and look at why you stated it that way. And understand that there is a huge difference between holding pens and camps. And you have to research that. You have to research the structure. You've got to research how they, um, how their, their schedule you have to research all that. And if you're emotionally attached to it, where, oh, I can't do that because I hate the Germans. You run into students that say this, especially the freshmen and the sophomores and their undergrad. And it's like, well, you're going to have to, if you're going to do this topic, you're going to have to push yourself to a point in your research to where you're going to have to study that most disturbing and if you can't, if you cannot do that, then you don't need to be the detective of history. And that's what, basically what we are. We're detectives of history. We have to piece the whole, all that evidence that we have left over to form our case. Um, and you've got to look at, and you have to get in the mind frame of the bad guys. And you can't pick sides. Because, and Eli was still said this too during the Nuremberg trials, everybody wanted to go after uh, a certain point in the Nuremberg trials. Everybody wanted the Jews that were that were working with the Germans to be put on trial. And it was Eli was still said, "Hey, wait a minute, we can't do this." He said, "Because you and I both know that we killed our fellow man just for that piece of moldy bread." It was a huge statement that he used. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Mm-hmm. It was a huge statement that he used. And it just struck me like, oh, my gosh, you know, he's right. If we judge the Germans the same way, then all those victims, because they were, we'll have to judge them the same way that we're judging the Germans. So the women that were forced into the brothels of these camps, guess what? We have to judge them the same way. They're no longer victims. They work with the Germans. And it changes that emotion. Look at it, because then who are the victims and who are really the perpetrators at that point? And Leela said, we have to draw a line somewhere. And so a line was drawn. And so we never went after the uh, the victims that were trying to survive that were like, we're going to use the Germans to get that extra piece of bread, to get extra, to get that extra potato peeling in our soup. That's how horrible humans can lower themselves and how horribly you can fall off the food chain. Yeah, You know, I mean, it was, those words just really struck me. And I really started really researching what he meant by that. And it's, it's hard. It's, it was the most worst experience of being a historian is to research those words and why he said the way he said, because when you start researching deep into this, it it's really hard. It was one of the hardest topics I've ever researched in my life um, because you're seeing that it's not black and white. You didn't have the victims and the murderers. You had a lot going on there and it was all about survival. Well, I I think you make a good point. I'd like to, I'd like to interject here just to, 
just to ask a few follow-up questions about a few things. Um, one, I, I totally agree that learning to empathize with both sides of a conflict is, is actually a really important skill. And I think a lot of people, I mean, what's on my mind right now, I think on a lot of people's minds, let's, for example, is what's going on in the Ukraine. And we've got, I mean, right. this is happening now, but we've got clearly these different interpretations of how things are going and um, it's been frustrating for me that people, um, so many people here in the United States can't at least understand the perception of Putin or the Russians, that, that they think they have an argument, you know? I mean, you talk, it's, and, and that's not even as extreme as, as, as trying to empathize with the Germans in the concentration camps. But if you don't empathize with both sides in the conflict, you, you're never really going to like figure out, you're, you're not going to have that dispassionate view, I think, that you're talking about in an interpreting history to, to make an interpretation that actually uh, conforms to what was really going on during the time. You have to understand, you know, both perspectives or all perspectives, as many different perspectives as you can. So we can have this nuanced conversation that includes all these different points of view instead of just this really black and white interpretation, which I think so many people, just like you're talking about, they fall into these very black and white. This is what I've been noticing lately. Mm -hmm. So often in political conversations or talking about current events, even um, people fall into these very black and white per perceptions mm -hmm. of things where if you're, you know, if you're not with me, then you're an enemy or you're against me. Right. Conversation loses all kinds of, of nuance. Um, but I wanted to ask you a follow-up question. I just wanted to acknowledge that that truth, but I wanted to ask you a follow-up question about how do we, if we are interpreting history in this way, um, and, and I agree with you that that it's um, it's a mistake to apply modern morality and ethics to what was happening in the past. I mean, the people that engage, if you're trying to judge somebody that lived hundreds of years ago without a appreciating the context of their situation uh and the and the right. mores and and the moralities of the time and then you're you're just ascribing a, a value judgment uh on a situation that you really don't even understand i mean you weren't there you're not a part of it you can't right. you know so i i think that making those value judgments we, we hear this one a lot i i feel like in the in the you know thomas jefferson owned slaves so every he must have been an evil person and everything he said, you know, was terrible. Well, it's like, well, he did own slaves, but a lot of what he wrote still, had, you know, had validity. And given the circumstances of the time, can you, uh, you know, forgive um, and not necessarily forget, but forgive the fact that that he had all of these social pressures and he was put in this situation and he, you know, and he might end up doing an act um, of owning a slave that someone today would simply consider to be aberrant behavior and terrible. Right, right. Um, but why throw out, you know, the baby with the bathwater because of the cultural situation that he was in at the time? It doesn't mean that all people aren't created equal, right? I mean. Right, exactly. So. <laughs> well, all people created equal, that was a very, fairly new concept too. You're talking about the Enlightenment movement. Yeah. Um. During Thomas Jefferson in slavery, the whole entire world was involved in the slave trade. The whole entire world was involved in the Silk Roads. And the, out of the Silk uh, Roads, it formed into slavery. Right. And you have 
Muslim slaves, you have African slaves, you had European slaves, and they were all being traded along the Silk Roads within each other. Um, There's a picture of this Afghanistanian girl in 1980s, and she has blue eyes. Well, what Afghanistanian person would have blue eyes? The Silk Roads. (laughs) We were trading off of each other. The global trade, that was the whole point of discovering America. Again, they wanted the global trade. They wanted to expand on the Silk Roads and slavery, the Salt Roads. It all formed into one um, colossal uh, trafficking trade, if you will. And it, it continues on even today. Yeah. You know, it's, it never broke. It's still there. It's just underground now where back then it was wide open. Anybody could t- participate in it. So what the, the cool part about George Washington and Jefferson is that eventually they freed their slaves. That was huge. That was, that was odd. Right. When you look at it in a global perspective, you, that was not normal. That was something that's what we need to look at is why they did that and what convictions that. that, Because that was not the norm. You didn't free your slaves at all. That was not something that was done. Well, it was very rare. I want to ask you this. Um, If we are having this kind of dispassionate view of history, though, this non-judgmental view, recognizing uh, the, the context of the times, um how, how do we read history and then can we read history but still um you know come up with relevant conclusions that can help us form our worldview today right you know i mean we we i understand not making value judgments about what happened in the past but um you know can we read uh for example or study history and say well you know i'd i'd like to not see um you know, a repeat of the concentration camps or a repeat of that, the kind of slavery that we had in the past, or we can, you know, we can learn from our mistakes. I guess that's what I'm saying. And, and, and how does that, uh, how does that reflect within the narrative uh, of writing history? Well, looking back that my, you can look at prisons, you know, um, again, holding pins. What what are we talking about here? We we still have them. If you want to say, sure. I think it was Cortez, uh, Cortez that said it that you know concentration camps were the same thing as an internment camp, or what was I think she was mentioning something that was going on in Mexico because of the holding pins we have there. And I thought, well, what about prisons? That 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 would have been my argument. What for her, if I looked her in the eye, I'd be like, well, explain to me prisons then. You know, are you saying that we shouldn't have prisons? Are we should are we saying that we need to get rid of that? I think that we really need to look at the history of the the concept of holding pens going back to the ancient times. They had them. It was part of their life too. This is nothing new in history. What is new for human beings is that we're not brutal like Rome. We're not brutal like the Babylon Empire. We're not, we are not holding women hostage just for um, sexual intercourse. We're not, we, we think of ourselves as better people. Now, we 
still have modern slavery, but who's involved in that? Your average person, your average neighbor is not going to be involved in human trafficking. Um, you're just, that's, that's a hard thing to, to wrap your brain around. But normally in your neighborhood, you're not going to have human traffickers, right? You, you, um, you feel safe walking to your mailbox. So we no longer live in the ancient period and we have evolved, you know, human beings have evolved because we have this concept of morals and values that did not exist in the ancient period. It was conquer and divide, fight to the death, exploit, take ravage, take advantage. Um, Now we have this concept, those things are still there in human nature, but we have we have kind of, in our way, we have oppressed it. They're bad people and I want to be better. And so we kind of oppress that nature that we have. It's still there. You look on the news all, all day and right. you're going to see that there, a murder was committed, that a bomb was, you know, was used uh, the shoe bomber, for instance, the Boston, the Boston uh, bombing, nine eleven. I mean, we still do horrible things, but we don't. We have it in our mind that we're better because it's not happening every single day, all day long. When you look at Rome, it it, it was like that. I mean, it was the murder that that you would witness on a database basis. We we shelter our kids by what they watch and what they listen to on TV. You couldn't shelter your children from that in the ancient period at all. They were right there. Look at the medieval period during the witch hunts. You're by the time you reach 10, you're going to see your own relatives being butchered and hacked to death and being burned alive by the, the Roman Catholic church, by your own King. Right. Um, Winthrop witnessed it when he was a boy, he saw his own family being uh, executed in a most brutal way by, uh, by the tours dynasty. He witnessed it himself. You know, that was a common thing to see. It was not a big issue to see someone being chopped to death or being racked and having their body parts being ripped open by, you know, horses being drawn and corded. I mean, that that's something that we don't witness. Back in those times, by the time you were five or ten, you witnessed several of those events in in in, in real life. And that has a psychological impact on these individuals. So we have evolved and we have this concept that we are nice people. Um, But not all human beings are nice. You know, um, you can look at uh, Stalin and Mussolini, um, Castro, even Hitler. And say, we're still, we have a far way to go. Sure. You're going to be able to get rid of that evil. No, there's no way. Um, I believe it's the Bible that says that human beings are, uh, are, uh, what does it say? That uh, man is um, inherently evil. I think that's what the scripture says. Man is. Think about what that means. We are inherently evil. We have that evil. What sets human beings apart is if you're going to 
um, open the door to be evil? Or are you going to shut it and try to be the better person? And I think in modern times, especially us to today, we really have that consciousness of being good. We want to be good. We don't want to be evil. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. We we want to be, you know, apologetic. We want to be sympathetic. We want to have empathy. These are the, the characteristics that we try to uh, initiate on a day-to-day basis. Back in the ancient times, there was very, it was very rare. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why Jesus was such a huge figure because he was like literally the first person that was says, okay, let's be nice. Let's, let's love each other. It was not a, that was in the human factor in the human period that was never known before. It was so odd for this one man, especially a Jewish man to go up to these kids and start talking to them. Men didn't talk to kids like they do into Jesus's time. They definitely didn't talk to them like we do now. Right. Um, they were a commodity. They they could inherit. There was something that you could. Um, they marry a wife, and but more wealth come into the home. They weren't seen as as children are seen now. They were seen as another thing to exploit you know it was not about enjoying their their time it was just something that now we have kids now we have more we have more kids to help us work the fields you know it was not it was not viewed as how we did now And, and just like women jesus talked to women that was not something men did in the ancient periods this was something very very new it was something that seen. That's what was so shocking. And that's why people started questioning Jesus. And he just wasn't, he was the oddball of society. And he was not, um, a, a, he was very peculiar for a man to do what Jesus did. It was very odd. He was crazy. And he was probably seen as crazy. Sure. Um, and people nowadays don't understand Jesus because we have this modern thought that was really weird that he did that. That was not, that was not normal. And we have this concept of life is the same as it always was. And you are listening to this. You are listening to the first free hour of the shift with Doug McKinty for access to the full feature length versions of the podcast. Go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKenty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to the Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. Well, I mean, and that's the, that's the thing, just to go back to the point about teaching kids how to do their own research about these things. Like a lot of these textbooks, I mean, they're just lists of facts and it's like, well, what, what are the contexts? What's the narrative that I would construct? What's my opinion about what happened? You know, this is how I think history needs to be taught. And it is, it's just way more in depth than, you know, memorize these facts and then then put them on this test. And it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, the way they're teaching history in public schools isn't preparing 
kids to become adults and then interpret the journalism that they're, you know, there's so much information or interpret the research that they're getting on the well, internet. Most, most kids will tell you this is boring. I hate learning these they, events. They get bored. And, well, it's boring. The and way I'm like, it is. <laughs> the way we teach it is boring. I mean, yeah. when I when I study a battlefield, and again, I have a master's degree. I spent eight years doing it at a college level. When I study a battlefield, I'm looking at so many different factors here. I'm looking at economics. I'm looking at the artillery from both sides. I'm looking at the supply chains between both sides. Right. Who has the better commanders than the rest? Uh, communications. Uh, there's a lot going on on a battlefield. Well, how we study a battlefield is like, okay, we have to memorize all the commanders on both sides of this conflict, memorize their uniforms and identify their patches. That's great. I mean, that, I'm not knocking that. You, that's important to know. But I'm not sitting there as a historian looking at those things. I do that after. What I'm looking for is how the battle emerged and right. who was the winner, who was the loser, and why. I'm looking at key factors of how they navigated the battlefield. Battlefield is to me is a major chess game and you have to look at the strategy. You have to look at the logistics. You have to look at communication. You have to look at technology, all these things. Again, the historical lenses has to be evaluated. We don't teach it that way. Now, if we taught history that way with using those facts that we have, because I don't want my third grader going into what I just explained to you when I did in, in seventh grade, um, which I'm glad my parents allowed me to do that and gave me the free will. It, it made me to the person that I am today. And by the time I was in high school, I already knew who I was. I didn't have an identity crisis. I knew what I believed in. I knew uh, the different dif difference between the political parties of the United States. I knew how our government worked. I mean, this is before I even, even I didn't even have civics yet. I mean, yeah. this is just me coming in as a freshman in high school. I was a well-rounded individual. And it was because of all that research that I did on my own in history. It teaches you so much. And I'm not knocking that value at all. It's, it's we've got to be careful how we go about teaching history the correct way. What does that mean? Like there's things there that you can't discuss to these kids. A, they're minors. Most of the topics that you run in, in is not for minors to read at all. It's not PG-13. It goes beyond rated R in most cases. And they're just not matured enough to handle that. So let's teach through the facts that we have in these textbooks. Because they're written for their mind and their maturity um in mind when they were written and let's teach them okay here's the project instead of doing a test of these dates and matching that date to you know the event or you know multiple choice let's do a history project i want you to go in and look at this battlefield and I want you to do the research. Here's the sources that I need you to have. I need you to have so many primary sources, so many secondary sources. And I need you to have these kind of sources, the, the, the proper 
the proper sources, the, the scholarly sources, and I need you to write a paper on it. So they do a paper. The next project, turn your paper into a presentation and have, have you teach your paper to the class. Yeah. Let's get rid of this testing and evaluating all right. this tests and everything because you're not going to remember all the presidents of the United States. That's well, not what a historian does. We, we could I, care I, less. Yeah, I think the ability to write like that, too, is really important and construct the, the argument from the source material. And that I mean, that I remember, um, you know, when I studied uh, history in college, I actually had a great teacher that required a lot of comparative writing like that. Um, and it really transformed my sense of history, because when you're writing your own opinion and you're constructing your own argument based on that source material, it really teaches you a, a totally different way of thinking about history. And like I said, even modern journalism, I mean, the information that you're getting when you're doing the research on the internet, learning how to take all of that information and having the discipline to really double check the sources and then being able to make your own argument out of that. I mean, that's, that's clutch. That's a really important human life skill to have. You it know? is. And it teaches these kids. Okay. So someone told me this and this, I'm not going to automatically believe it because I saw it on the internet. A lot of our kids and I know adults that do this. To, oh my gosh. Adults even do this. And it gets on my nerves. I was on TikTok and they didn't understand the treaty between the, the Ukraine that the Ukraine and right. Russia have in 1947, there's a treaty there. And I was like, I couldn't remember the name of it. And everybody's like, where's the link? Where's the link? And I'm like, the link? I'm like, there's no <laughs> link. Like, I can give you the book that talks about it. I can give you the name of the book. And people were just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, it was just kind of like the conversation just died. And I'm like, what do you mean a link? Like, we're so in tune of the link, the link, the link. I'm like, there's more than on the internet. Read a book. <laughs> yeah. Like, why are we going and arguing over links? Read the book. Find it for yourself. You know, we're not, you're talking about, and then there was one guy that says, well, the document's irrelevant because it's an old document. Okay. Does that make the constitution irrelevant? Because it's an old document. Right. Like, the like you get these comments and it's like you don't even have any idea and these are people supposedly historians that I'm talking to and I'm like you're not a historian or you would have never said that <laughs> but it's just you've got to be careful of how you approach history and you've got to know your how to do it and you got to do it properly us going in and just saying okay let's teach it let's teach true history what is that Okay, so you want us to really dive deep into these topics. You're not going to have the time to do that. You've got to, I like your idea. Let's take it to, let's remove the tests and take it to a research level. Yeah. And let these kids do it on their own. Yeah. And have the parents supervise if they want to supervise the research yeah, because they can get more out of it. By the time these kids are in high school, like I was, which I was a homeschool student. So it was different for me. I didn't have a, a strict curriculum. I mean, it was just like, my parents just let me go. Okay. If that's what you, as long as you're reading, you're doing cool. research, we're cool yeah. with it. So that's why I was allowed to do what I did. And by the time I was in high school, I didn't have to go through self-esteem. I didn't have, 
the issues of uh, being subjected to drugs and alcohol and parties. I was not even into that because I'm like, why even get involved in that when I know the factors that lead to that? You know, Ukraine, for instance, during the World War II will show you exactly the horrors of alcohol when you have weapons in your hands. So I had right. this, this concept of alcohol is bad. Drugs are bad. It causes you to do bad things because history taught me that. And so I, I was never the one to, that was, um, that fell for peer pressure. If anything, it made me into the leader that I am today. And it, it teaches kids to be how to get onto those leadership roles, but we're so scared to let our kids go. And we're so we baby them to where, you know, everything has a rate. If we're going to rate our video games and our music and our TV shows, and, you know, you have to be over 18 to see a rated R movie in a theater, then they're not, they're not mature enough to handle the true history that that's, to go i mean have it all and you can't have it both ways i mean if we really want to teach history to these kids then realize what that means i mean you're going to go into some really deep topics i know parents that don't let their kids even be taught evolution Mm. you know that's another issue that we have that public schools struggle with is evolution evolution theory and it's like well there's a lot of theories there and why are we just picking fun at the evolution theory because there's more theories out there than just evolution. Are you just, is it the evolution theory that we have an issue with? Um, You know, there's things there that parents are just like, no, 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 not my kid, not my kid. Well, I I like the homeschool angle just because it does give parents that kind of uh, autonomy and they can choose and they know their, their kid and their, and Mm -hmm. they can help their kid as they mature, you know, to have access to, to more broader information. Um, And just having that really hinder curriculums really hinder the ability and then you have these now teachers don't have time to even teach they're they're so it's all paperwork yeah you know, sure. it's, it's so paperwork driven and it's so test driven like if these they don't pass the end of the year test i'll get fired and i'm like when did we get to that point right like yeah, the system's pretty broken. yeah it is so it is so destroyed we destroyed our education we really have because private schools don't work that way they don't operate that way yet public schools do and that shows yeah. you the issue that we have we're just it's it, it's to the point to where it's just nonsense i'm trying to right now i work a tutor students just to give you an idea and then we'll probably have to wrap this up yep but i tutor students in third grade and he has fractions and like they're not even given the basics of the fraction and they have word problems to learn fractions Hmm. and i'm like wait a minute we've got to learn what a fraction is before we can even start doing word problems with fractions like that doesn't even make any sense to me. Yeah. It's too overwhelming. And this little boy is just sitting here and he's just. I know. So fried. He's just, yeah, his brain's fried. He doesn't understand any of it. And it's like, well, the answer's in the question. If you really look at it and it's like, so I'm having to teach him a new way of looking at fractions 
because the new way that we we got going on is is not working for him. And it's it's sad that we've come to this point to where we're forcing things on our kids that it doesn't make any sense to me. By the time they're in college, that right there is not even going to matter. Um, you, it, it's weird, and it's like we're preparing our kids for college and all. Blah, 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 blah. Not really. Yeah. Colleges now have to have more remedials than any any than they did back 20, 30 years ago. Yep. Sure. Because our system is so broken. Our kids are not even prepared for college and more remedials are having to be implemented in our colleges because the system is so broken. And, but anyway, we can go on and on about that, but <laughs> history is just, it's a deep, deep study that requires a lot of time. You can't just pull up one article and say, okay, that's my argument. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way. Right. It would be too easy. There's a lot of factors that you have to look at and historical methods, historical lenses, um, testing your sources against each other, looking at those theses, looking at where the, the author got their sources and implementing your own thesis and your own, own your own argument along with all of the others, you know, does it align? Does it, is it going to give more to the historiography? Is it going to take away? If it takes away, you're doing something wrong. Right. But if it's adding to it, if it's adding a new theory, a new concept, a, a, a new individual that you ran across, then you're doing it right. But if it's taken away from the historiography, that's already there you're doing it wrong. There's something there. Well, sounds good. Jenny, do you want to let people know where they can find your blog one more time before we go? Yes. Um, Jenny Kirby history. That's J E N I Kirby K I R B Y history.com. You can email me Jenny Kirby history at gmail.com. If you have any questions or concerns, especially the college students, uh, High school students, you need to find that source out there. Reach out. I'm more than willing to help you. Um, and uh, just know that make sure that you're using proper sources. That is the key to success, uh, to your success is proper sources. Cool. Um, and just reach out if you have any questions or concerns. My website has all my social media on there. I do a lot on Instagram. Um, I post a lot of historical uh, uh, photos, images, paintings uh, throughout the humanities. And um, I do have my, uh, on my Facebook page, I have articles, historical articles that I just randomly post. And you can go on there and they're, they're legit. They're the credible sources and you can pull from that. If it's not a credible source and I, I'll let you know that it's not a credible source. Like, like here, I just ran across this randomly and this is the issue. Right. Don't use those kind of sources. I will clearly state if it's not a credible source or not, because I found that kind of stuff interesting. Like, okay, we need to, because as a historian, we have to evaluate the good and the bad. Yeah. And so you have to evaluate those that are trying to do history, but just don't quite make it. Well, sounds good, Jenny. Um, I, uh, I enjoyed checking out your blog. You actually have um, a couple of uh, really good posts there that 
Well, you know, I guess what was interesting to me was that, you know, you talk about women in history, you talk about the Native American slave trade, you talk about um, a lot of these topics that are that are, quote unquote, the controversial topics, but you're doing it from your your perspective, you're staying true mm-hmm. to the real history. Um, but you're still talking about sexism and slavery and inequality and, and these important topics that uh, people can can bring a lot, take a lot out of from right. under by understanding that perspective from the context, the cultural context of the time. So I hope people uh, go to Jenny, JennyKirbyHistory.com and check it out. Um, and I'll just let people know that they've been listening to The Shift. Uh, I've been your host. My name is Doug McKinty. Uh, I am at Doug McKinty on Facebook or at D McKinty on Twitter is the best place to find my stuff. Uh, the show is uh, on SoundCloud, uh, on YouTube, on Rockfin and Odyssey. If you want to find more episodes or the best place to go actually is my website, www.theshiftnow.com uh, and sign up for the newsletter. And then I'll keep you updated uh, on everything that I keep that I come out with as I come out with it. Uh, Also, uh, you can check out my blog. It's uh, on Substack called the populist papers and you can sign up there too. And I'll, uh, and I'll send um, not just my blog, but also the podcast go out from there as well. So thanks everybody for checking this one out. And thank you, Jenny, for coming on. I think it's actually a really important topic. I wish people more, more people really understood how to do this kind of a real deep dive into history and interpret history. And then they would do a better job of interpreting all the information that's out there on the internet. You got to be able to find your sources and have that discipline to figure out what's really going on instead of just finding something you like and then pretending like that's reality, you know? Right, right, (laughs) right. Definitely. And that's a lot of big issues of it. And two, people just don't know. People go in there, oh, well, because I read this book, it makes me, I can do just what a historian does. Mm, no. Right. Sorry. Um, I'm sure there's people out there that have studied history at the level of a historian, and I applaud those. I, I don't sit there and be like, oh, you have to have a degree to be a historian. If you have the experience and you're the published author of these historical topics, then most likely you know your stuff too. Right. You don't have to have those degrees behind your name. And I don't want to, you know, th- people think that, you know, I, I'm that way. I'm snobby enough to be like that. No, you can be a historian without having the degrees. They're just far and be- far, far between. Sure. Um, Philbrick, for instance, he's a great, and I don't think he's a historian. Um mm-hmm. You know, there's Ambrose. He's not a historian, but he's he knows his stuff. He knows the historical methods. He uses them. And, sure. you know, it's you have to know who your author is that and to find out yourself if it's a credible source or not. Um, and look into it. It's all it takes is just a little bit of deep diving. And right. it of facts and interesting topics that you have never heard of because you weren't taught it in public school just go in and enjoy it it's it's all about trying to find that one document that just is your wow factor and then once you get on that on that that train it it will take you to new heights and just enjoy it and don't make it so daunting for it just like the first link you come to oh that's history yeah, uh, it's it's a process. It takes it takes years of research. Yeah, it does. It takes years and just practice.
Yep. Sounds good, Jenny. Thanks All again. Right, thanks, Sheila. Thank yep. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, ladies and gentlemen. There was my conversation with historian Jenny Kirby. Uh, happy to do this one, especially as a follow-up to uh, episode 113, um, the episode that was about the book Prestitutes by Udo Ulfgott, um, discussing the corruption that happens inside the mainstream media, uh, especially in the West, in terms of how journalists are uh, expected, essentially, to follow the narrative that is kind of fed to them uh, through think tanks, uh, through other avenues that have been funded essentially by upper-class interests. Um, and the reason is because I think it's really important that people learn how to uh, be able to interpret their source material when they're ingesting news. It took me a long time, and a lot of people say, uh, once you become a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist, that there's no way all journalists are part of this, we live in a free society, uh, you know, journalists would never just propagandize. They're not all pushing one narrative. The journalists would never lie. The editors go over the research and they make sure to and check the, this primary source material. Uh, and so we know that we're getting good information from the corporate news. And uh, I actually, at one point in my life, was involved in a local listserv where we'd get in political arguments. And I finally, it was about the time that the fake news thing I started catching on in the mainstream media, and I was wondering, you know, I do get a lot of information from independent sources, um, but I was having conversations on this listserv with a lot of people that would post the CNN article or the New York Times article or the Washington Post article. Uh, and so I really, um, I followed this protocol that Jenny talks about pretty closely, uh, and I really followed everything down uh, clicking on all the sources, figuring out where it came from. And that was when I really discovered to my own satisfaction that a lot of the mainstream narrative uh, is really sourced by uh, one or two newspapers. I mean, principally the New York Times or the Washington Post will come out with something. It gets repeated ad nauseum across the entire corporate spectrum. Uh, and then when you get back to that one first source and you look at it, the New York Times article, the Washington Post article, uh, the source for that, in a lot of cases, I'll tell you, is an anonymous source in the CIA. Uh, so you have to wonder just how easy it is for people in the CIA to just plant a story uh, and it becomes the narrative. Uh, I saw it over and over again. And uh, so I think it's really important. And plus, uh, then you get, of course, uh, if you're listening to independent news sources or conspiracy theory sources, then people say, well, that's just fake news. That's misinformation. Well, okay. You know, and I, and I ask you to do this with people. Let's actually have a conversation. Let's look at your article that says your narrative and my article that says a different narrative, and let's compare the source material. And this is the kind of discipline you really need to have uh, if you want to discover the most accurate narrative that you can out there. I've heard, um, for example, like Russia Today may well be uh, Russian propaganda, but I don't think the Russians have to lie as much as the Americans in order to get their narrative apart across. Because when I really look at an, an RT article, they're mentioning a lot of information, they're sourcing a lot of material. It seems to be a lot tighter than what you get uh, in Western journalism in general. So when people just throw out that term propaganda, uh, I would invite them to source their their material. Let's do it. Let's let's have the intellectual integrity to be able to go through this process. Um, 
and I, nine times out of ten you find that they won't do it. <laughs> but it's worth a try, and if they don't do it, then they don't have a leg to stand on with their argument or their point of view or their narrative or whatever. We should be able to have these very logical conversations. You don't need to be attached to your point of view. If you follow this protocol as outlined in, in, uh, in this interview, and you stay true to the discipline of, of uh, this kind of academic study, this research protocol, um, you'll you'll discover the truth. It should be something that people can do. They can enjoy doing it together instead of arguing all the time. Let's work together to figure out uh, what is the most accurate narrative for the news of the day, for what we're hearing and what we're getting, instead of arguing about whose propaganda we're going to believe in most, right? So I was really happy that Jenny came on uh, so that she could really kind of uh, give us some of those pointers. I mean, just some of the fundamentals about doing this kind of research so we don't get thrown off by the propaganda that's out there and uh, by the fake news and the misinformation. I mean, you've got to really vet your source before you start trusting it. Uh, and I bet if you vet some of these mainstream corporate sources, uh, you're going to find that they don't follow uh, they don't follow this kind of rigor. So uh, I urge all of you to check out uh, Jenny's stuff. Uh, her blogs are interesting, well-written. Uh, uh, and she's got a few episodes of the podcast out. I hope she keeps doing that. Her historical point of view is unique. Um, and uh, it's well worth taking a look at. So you can check that out at www.jennykirbyhistory.com. And... Uh, as always, if you want to find out more about The Shift, you can check me out at www.theshiftnow.com. I've also, as many of you know now, I've been writing articles uh, on Substack at the Populous Papers. It's actually becoming a pretty easy venue to be able to sign up. If you subscribe, uh, I post the podcast up there too, so the podcasts and all my articles will just go to your email. Um, probably becoming quickly the most uh, easy way to access all of my latest stuff as it comes out. So uh, I urge people to sign up to the Substack at the Populous Papers. Um, next week, I've got a voluntarist libertarian. He's just written a book, The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism. Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, some anarcho-capitalism. Uh, I've been getting a little bit more interested in, in having uh, more of those kinds of people on because I really think that... Uh, well, I mean, I'm starting to really think that the solution to a lot of our problems is to really decentralize power, and I hope some of these libertarian ideas can can help to promote that, just to decentralize and power uh, our communities, our county governments, even the state governments, and, and just try to make those the real central structures like the federal government smaller and smaller, right? <laughs> I don't... <laughs> Can't imagine a lot of people disagreeing with that. So anyway, that'll be for next week. Uh, again, you can check my stuff out at www.theshiftnow.com. And uh, I will see you uh, again in seven days or so. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care.